0: The truth of the matter was, stories was everything, everything, and, everything and everything was stories. stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they, they were, were in the world. world. It was their understanding of themselves.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special
0: It's like what Aristotle said. He said, unless you're 40 years old, you might as well not even read my books. And what my point is, is sometimes we need a little life experience behind us to help us realize where we're at and where we need to be, you know, understanding what the difference is. Because without life experience, there is no difference. You just don't know yet. You don't see it. So it takes life experience to know the difference. (laughs) ¶¶ And so, I went through the same thing in in my life. You know, I became a biker or whatever, an outlaw or whatever you want to, you know, call it. And tried to be a good one. I had morals, respect. I wasn't a rat. I didn't break anybody's finger who didn't need it. (laughs) But uh, after a while, you come to a place in your life where your hopes have turned to sawdust. The world we live in is a radical contingency which has every conceivable avenue of distraction that, that you want to play with. I played with one that started dissolving my mind into a sphere that had no structure, no meaning. And all my desires were all irrational. I have spent probably years of my life figuring out how I was going to kick somebody's ass or get my money back or make a buck. You know, it's no wonder I couldn't think of anything good or happy. Or And it took me till I was 50. You know, I'm, I'm glad because I, I left a lot of dead friends along the way, you know, that, that much better people than me that just got taken out, you know, by disease or playing too hard or whatever. Unfortunately, you can use these powerful tools of, of your desire, your, your freedom, your judgment, your intent. You can employ those toward things that are meaningless, and if you do that, you will become meaningless. So, by, by the grace of God, I had the honor of of dancing. <laughs> My name is Jay Bird. I'm living off the grid out here in uh, Indian country, surrounded by junipers. I got solar panels, and I collect water off the roof and uh, hang out, meditate. Especially where I'm at is there's no, just no human contact, and there's no accoutrements. I was born and raised in L.A., San Fernando Valley 1953, so that makes me like 60. Ooh. <laughs> I grew up there, you know, Vietnam War and stuff, and hippies and good drugs and motorcycles and all kind of chaos. Vietnam is going on, and, and all my friends are going over there and getting in the action, and I'm seeing them come back, and they were different. You could see it in their eyes that they've been in the mix, you know, and, and they've seen some, some grit. And I like that. And so I wanted a piece of that. This is a different kind of war. And there are great stakes. But before I became old enough to get in the military, I got in a car accident and broke my pelvis and my femur and my back. And I had a bunch of metal put in me. So when I went to join, they wouldn't take me. In those days, it was cool to be an outlaw. You weren't supposed to trust the man. You weren't supposed to trust society. You weren't supposed to trust anybody over 30. So who do you trust in, you know? Inverts everything. It turns everything upside down. So you you really have no solid belief system. My folks didn't go to church. They, they worked all the time to make the American dream. Left us kids alone, my brother and I, to, to just do what we wanted to do. By the time we were doing what we wanted to do... <laughs> It was a little late to do anything about it because we were already off the hook. I wanted to become one of them bikers, you know, one of them hellraisers, you know, one of them Fulios because they didn't take no shit off nobody and, and they were cool. Motorcycle
1: riding, a national pastime for hundreds of thousands of people. Just as there are different bikes, there are different people who ride them.
0: In those days they you could smell them from a block away and they were loud and obnoxious. I thought that was just the the coolest shit possible. Of course, in a a foolish mind, you you think to be like that, you need to to break the law. When I was 13 years old, I got arrested for commercial burglary because I was breaking into closed stores, stealing booze and cigarettes, and, and I'd taken a carton of cigarettes and take them to school and start selling them to the kids at school, you know, and to make my weed money and stuff like that, you know, so. <laughs> that time, you know, 13, 14, my folks got divorced and my dad moved away and I stayed with my mom and she couldn't handle me because I, I just wouldn't come home anymore. and. So she said, either I had to leave, or go live with my dad, or you know, go to a foster home or something. So I had to go to a psychiatrist, and they thought I was something was wrong with me, you know, and because I told them I was gonna, I was just gonna run away. The only useful thing my psychiatrist told me, he said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you go try it out with your dad, and if you don't like it, then you could run away. I said, hey, that's a good idea. At the time, he was living up in Washington. I went up there and started living with my stepmom and and him, which, unbeknownst to me, opened up the other side of the world to me because I was used to the city, I was used to uh, chaos. I went from that to living out in the middle of nowhere like I am now. It was a culture shock, you know, uh, going from one extreme to the other. I couldn't find a dope dealer. <laughs> I couldn't find a... I couldn't find no drugs or anything. My stepmom was kind of a Christian. I found her Bible one day and it was like all marked up and and it was like trashed and I'd never seen nothing like that before. I started asking her questions about you know, what, what all that meant. It was just so outrageous to think that Jesus died for my sins, you know, I, it's like, what does that mean? Do you really care? Does it really matter? Should I be concerned about that? And this this is like my senior year in high school. And since I couldn't go into military, I went to a Bible college in North Dakota. For three years, I studied theology up there. And it was good, and it was cool. it It, it opened up a whole new... Like way of thinking, but I, I didn't really reject it. I just thought that it wasn't for me. I, I couldn't wear polyester. You know, I just could not stand to wear white belts and polyester. After that, I moved back to L.A. and I fell in with my old friends. I started wearing leather. <laughs> and riding hot chrome motorcycles and and acting crazy and doing drugs again. Of course, when when your head is filled with nothing and you think it is, (laughs) then uh, you're pretty dangerous. Consequently, it, it wasn't very long until I started doing armed robberies. hit a, a nice restaurant on a three day weekend on the last day before they the banks open they usually have a lot of money in here so my friend he wanted to go we picked out a, a restaurant by the freeway we could get away fast we went in and it was it was crowded got a table the front cleared out I told him to get the car around I had my hair in a ponytail, so it was all pulled back. So when I let it down, you know, it would have been harder to, to recognize me. There was a lady up front, and I pulled out a gun. I said, let's go, let's go get the cash. Give me what's under the drawer, give me what's in the drawer. I wanted everything or as much as I could get. There was a bank bag, and there was a few thousand bucks in it. Anyway, that was that was the first one. It was exhilarating, you know. It could have gone bad. I could have got killed, or somebody else could have got killed. You know. What I mean, actually, I I think, I think it went pretty good.
1: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It was right in line with uh, being a crazy fool, and it was all good until I I got caught <laughs> and uh sent to prison <laughs> what happened was I, I was with another guy and he was my ride when well while I was robbing a place he panicked and went out and split on me I was without a ride and so uh, so I was you know trying to get out of the area as soon as possible and uh in in L- LA at, at the time they had helicopters and everything else and they they caught me with the cash in my pocket and, I think I had like uh, $1,700 thereabouts. I I really didn't have time to count it, but that's what they said I had. I wound up doing uh, two years. The first day that I was going to prison rolled up on chino in in what they call the the gray goose we first came up on this place gates barbed wire gun towers i remember saying holy shit really fucked up this thing so i had a b number b 76858 which which is an old number 76 i guess for the year I wasn't like muscled up, but I was big and I'd been around enough that I knew that I just needed to keep my mouth shut. Being an armed robber, that that got me a, a little bit of respect. Then you had to learn how to how to act, what to do, what not to do, because when when you're in prison, it it is totally segregated. The whites hang with the whites, the Mexicans with the Mexicans, and the blacks with the blacks. So most of it's just paying attention, asking a lot of questions. And not being a dipshit. I got out in uh, 78. I started working, delivering masonry, block and brick and stuff like that. I get paid and go get high, do uh, some uh, coke and heroin and get high for the weekend. Then I go back to work and work my ass off all week. I started working on motorcycles, and that became my main objective, making faster motorcycles, and hardcore motorcycles, you know, rigid frame. And hanging out with those hard partying guys and and doing a lot of speed and stuff like that. Going on bike runs, I started hanging out with clubs.
1: But police say that all too often, bikers break the law while in pursuit of a good time. It is the biker culture, police say, that provides the problems.
0: I want to make clear that I I was never in a bike gang. I've been invited to be in a bike gang. I hung around with the guys, but I did not want to have to be in somebody's club. Because you are devoted to each other, the hierarchy of, of a bike club is you have to earn your way in there. You can't just show up and start hanging around with them guys. If you're invited, you can you can come to their bar, you can come to the clubhouse. If if they like you and you want to, they will ask you to prospect. And when you prospect, you get a cutoff and you get a lower rocker. Whatever club it is, would would say like Southern California or, or whatever location. And so you would be wearing that alone. And so that would tell everybody that that you were the waiter, you know? You're the the servant, you're the busboy. They want you to ride to uh, Colorado and pick up a pack of cigarettes, you ride to Colorado and pick up a pack of cigarettes. They might have you go up on on a roof and recite poetry or something like that. Or they might have you walk around with, with no pants on. Why do that when you can hang around and party with them without you know, having to pay your dues.
1: Bikers who are law-abiding citizens who happen to have Harleys.
0: Around around the 80s, the economy, you know, the construction started falling out. They had a little recession. I I had to get a different job, and so I was struggling from week to week, and finally I said, screw this, I'm gonna start selling drugs. So I I started selling speed around L.A. and Orange County, and I, I would go on a route I would pick up like a quarter pound, half pound, sometimes a pound of speed. I would go through San Clemente, through Southern Orange County, and work my way up to uh, LA, and then go into LA, and I'd just drop parcels off all along the way. And of course, people that didn't pay, I would have to break fingers and stuff like that. Breaking a finger or two is like enlightenment your finger's going to heal you know it's not like i'm poking an eye out or anything like that if you pay attention it's it's going to benefit you you know because you're not going to want to do that anymore so ultimately it's it's kind of a analogy you know breaking fingers is is like life if you keep screwing up all your fingers are going to be crooked So I I wound up with a lot of weapons, a lot of machine guns and, and handguns and stuff like that. I mean, you start collecting all kinds of meaningless stuff, you know, from people that couldn't pay you. And eventually, I, 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 I was selling drugs to this this girl named Sue. We wound up hooking up, you know. She became my girlfriend. Unfortunately, she was as much of a lunatic as I was. She she loved carrying guns, and, and I couldn't take her to the connection, you know. She always wanted to go, and she always, like, gave me a really hard time because I, I wouldn't take her over there. And she would pull guns on me and stuff like that, and I'd have to take them away from her. We were in Santa Ana and we were trying to get to Costa Mesa and I, I was hired in gas you know I, I was like on the nod so I was having uh, Sue drive anyway she got off on the wrong street we got off on Beach Boulevard which is Huntington Beach and there's more cops in Huntington Beach than there are people so I told her to turn around let's get go back to the freeway and let's get the hell out of here well we were turning around the cops were in the parking lot and saw us and one of our headlights was out of alignment the cop pull us over and my dear lovely girlfriend at the time left her pistol in between us on, on the front seat and so she's telling she's talking to the cops and so he asked me who I am what's my deal unbeknownst to me he sees the 45 on the seat comes around to my side and he, he says could you please step out for a minute and as soon as I did he jumped on me and at the same time reached in and grabbed the pistol off the seat and stuck it in my mouth, and it was a hair trigger on this thing. He said some remark like if you fuck with me I'm gonna blow your brains out with your own gun. I got arrested again. I wound up doing two years for that for for possession of dangerous drugs, uh, transportation of narcotics and loading and concealed weapon felony with firearms. And I went back to Chino again, but I went to California Men's Colony, which is a part of Chino. And at, at that time, they had a program in there called Art Works Program. And what they did, they painted paintings for the institution. And they used to put them like like, the administration buildings. And they used to sell them to the public. I was pretty good at art. In fact, one of my hustles when I was in prison was uh, was I would I would do portraits of an inmate. And they'd send it to their old lady. So that that was my hustle. I'd, I'd make buy my cigarettes and stuff like that with uh, doing portraits. I got into this... Uh, art works program, the administration liked my work. So I was in in demand. At that time, they had a three strikes policy. I knew that after I got out, if I just paroled to California, it would just be a matter of time until I, I would be doing 25 years. So I said goodbye to California. And as soon as I got out of prison, I got a sack of dope and went to New Mexico. And from there, I went to Flagstaff, Arizona. was trying to make the transition from making an illegal living. I should mention I like tattoos. You know, you never have enough tattoos on you, so nobody was doing tattoos in Flagstaff. A couple of friends of mine and I got together and decided that we would open a shop in Flagstaff and do tattoos. 93, we started doing tattoos. While we were trying to get the shop ready, you know, we were doing putting some walls in and stuff like that. So I went out in the alley, Smoke a joint, and I had like a little bindle of speed in my pocket, and lo and behold, who walks around the corner but a freaking biggest gung ho cop in the whole city? Arrested me for possession of dangerous drugs, and I wound up doing house arrest. It was really kind of kind of comical because they didn't want me doing tattoos because I was around all these thugs and and low life, you know, people. According to them, and of course, I was. <laughs> In fact, I got so strung out on heroin that I got a, a good habit going I started getting sick and stuff, and which is kind of crazy because I was on house arrest and doing piss tests and stuff like that. During this house arrest procedure, Sue, my, my longtime Bonnie and Clyde sidekick, split on me. So I hooked up with Jennifer, who was even a bigger dope and she could really handle her drugs. I mean, she could do a lot of drugs. You go to prison and you get second senses, you know, you know when something's going to happen, you can smell it, you can feel it, you can, you, you got your spider senses going on, you know, and something's going to come down, Some somebody's going to get hurt, or sometimes you just don't know what it is, you just know that it ain't, it ain't a good thing, you know, so you just start watching out. And there's a bunch of weird people coming over to our house. A club of guys that were using drugs, selling drugs, a little prostitution. They would extort money from people, businesses, people, people that they could muscle strong armor or whatever, you know, and, and of course that was none of my business. I, I, I didn't know their business and I really didn't want to know their business. I knew that this was not a good scene. So I told my old I told Jennifer, I, I said, you know what, stop selling, stop. Get rid of everything, quit, clean up, something's coming down. Anyway, we got raided by the Get em Task Force, which, which is a gang task force, and they are loaded to bear and they surround the house and come in, and all they could find is a bag of weed. <laughs> All I can find them is a bag of weed. They were fucking pissed. But they took everybody to jail anyway. But I was clean. And so they started telling my old lady, you know what, your boyfriend, he's in, he's in big trouble. We're going to throw him right back in prison again and he's going to be there for a long time. I get out of jail because they couldn't keep me there because I didn't do anything. So she said, well, what do you want me to do? And, and I said, well, I put a wire on her. And I said, go talk to them, and we'll record it. What they wanted her to do was talk me into being a snitch for the... They, they wanted me to join the Hells Angels and, and be a informant. She got out, and I took the tape to the brothers. I said, hey, this is what they're trying to do. I, I got to get out of here because these guys are following me all over the place. They're going to find some little thing and, and lock me up. And the Hells Angels wanted me to join... I said, hey, you guys got medical and dental? You guys got an old fucked up biker retirement home or anything like that? I I said, because I'll tell you what, I ain't wearing a Target, you know? Fuck this, I ain't gonna do it. One, one of the brothers was in Sholo and he said well I'll tell you what if you move to Sholo I'll hook you up in a in a shop tattoo shop'll we'll, we'll start you doing tattoos over there and so that's what we did we opened a shop over there he rented the place for me and hooked me up with enough money to get started and in the meantime, Jennifer, who who got busted, too, was on probation. And she wasn't doing a very good job of it. So she got thrown in rehab, and she got out. And I said, let's clean up. Let's just quit all this fucking bullshit and clean up. Because I am just freaking miserable and getting more and more miserable as as I go. At this time, I'm 45 years old. I know what good is, but I don't know how to get there. Other people might have said, well, you're a good guy. But, in my heart, I did not feel good. I didn't want to go out in that frame of mind, and all this time i i I hadn't really lost my spiritual propensity. you know I know there's some spiritual ground here somewhere, but I, I am so far removed of it, I don't know where the hell it is. I don't know how to get there, I, I don't know what to do. I didn't want to go to a church, you know, I didn't want to go to AA, I didn't want to, you know, like, accept Jesus as my personal savior, because that really didn't mean anything to me, you know. I, I know Christ is powerful, but hey, I need some help. I, I don't need a formula, you know, a magic formula or anything like that. I need, I need some serious stuff to, to change my life from this chaos. So I made a simple prayer. I, I said, I said, Lord, I don't know how to do this. I don't know. I, I really don't know who you are or, or what's going on or how to, you know, please, please help me out here. And of course, I, I really didn't see it at first, but from that point on, things started happening. We had a raging fire over there in Sholo. In at that time, it was the biggest forest fire in uh, the history of Arizona, and it shut the town down. We had to evacuate for a month. And so when we came back, there's no economy left. Nobody has any money. Everybody's trying to get started again, so I can't pay rent. People are trying to get back to work, let alone trying to buy tattoos. So the business is zero, you know. My Hell's Angel buddy, he's going, hey, man, you owe me like $500. And I'm like, well, fuck your fucking $500. It's like, can you see what's going on here, you know? And By this time, my old lady had Taken off with my friend. And at first I got pissed, you know, but then I, I said, Oh, this is part of that prayer. I, I kept seeing all this stuff happening, you know, like it was like my spiritual man started speaking to me, going, You see the opportunity? And I said, Yeah, my old lady's gone. But the business is gone, I'm out of here. And so I said, I'm not gonna be a biker anymore. I had long hair, I had a big ponytail, a big goatee and stuff like that, and that was my look. I wasn't happy being this guy, so I shaved my head like a Buddhist monk, you know, and people are going, what the hell? I owed Rick, my friend, Hells Angel guy, 500 bucks. So I said, well, I don't have any. I'll give you a, a motor, a Harley motor. First he said, no, let's not do that, and, and then he came back a week later and he said, yeah, let's do that. All of a sudden, it dawned on me that this is the next step i brought all this stuff over to his house you know i brought all my, my gear my bike my tools my letters and, and i said here you go dude and, he, and he's looking at me like are you are you cool what's wrong dude and I, I said you know what consider me dead i am no longer here and he's going fuck dude i think you did too many drugs it was like a relief. I didn't have any stuff to watch. I didn't have stuff to protect. And so it's like, now what are you going to do? All of a sudden, I'm like nothing holding me anywhere. I've no, I don't own anything. I don't have any kids. I don't have any responsibilities. I don't. So this book came in the mail. I don't know where it came from or why it came in there, but it was a Christian book talking about 40 days, Moses fasted 40 days and Elisha fasted 40 days, Jesus fasted 40 days, and maybe this is it. Maybe, you know, this is what the deal is. I didn't want to die a dope fiend. I didn't want to die a dark, unproductive, miserable person. To me, it would be that would be my hell. And it took another year after that, but finally it culminated in my departure from everything. I hadn't been camping for 30 years. Luckily, my dad was a woodsman, and he taught me about how to get along in the woods, so I had that behind me. My buddy, he's a, he's a tow truck diver, so he had all kind of crap from people leaving stuff in their vehicles, and so we had a bunch of camping gear. So I started getting everything I needed together, and I had a, a backpack, duffel bag, and I brought a few books, you know, of course a Bible, and, and then some other spiritual books. I started looking on on maps and everything, and and trying to figure out where I could go where I could have water, because that's the most important thing is you need the water. So I I looked on the maps and I I found in the wilderness area out west of Flagstaff, there's some springs out there. I called the, the forestry place and I asked them if those springs go all the time. And they said, yeah, they're pretty regular springs. My project when I went out into the wilderness was to deconstruct my apathy and start trying to figure out what to replace it with. This canyon's pretty deep and so my plan was I was gonna take my stuff to the bottom of the canyon because there was a spring down there and I was gonna make a little base camp and hang out down there and see if I could pray my way into some kind of wakefulness. Got a ride from my buddy Jim. told him where I wanted to go and he, he said, okay, well, I'll take you out there, but I don't feel comfortable with leaving you out in the middle of freaking nowhere because it was a couple feet of snow on the ground out there. In fact, we couldn't even get to the trailhead. We, we could only get so far and he had to drop me, you know, because the snow got too deep and I had some snowshoes from a friend of mine. And of course, I'm a sucked up dope fiend. I'm not Mr. you know, mountain man. I hadn't run a lap in 30 years, you know, so... <laughs> I was five miles from, from the trailhead, and my map skills at that time were minimal, although I, I did have a compass and I knew how to read it. So I'm um, plodding through the snow, and then I, I camped in, in uh, under, underneath this oak tree, and it was quiet, and it was like really quiet. And it was the first time I recognized that I, I wasn't hearing nothing. I was amazed. And feeling the cold, you know, and smelling the smells, I was tripped out. And, of course, I bought a quarter pound of weed <laughs> 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 and a few Percocet. So it was, like, pretty amazing to me becoming intimate with that Ethos or or that situation. No TV, no radio, no people, no... I didn't have to be anywhere. I didn't have to make any money. I didn't have to pay any rent. And it was so silent, and I slept really good. What my plan was, I was going to set up a camp, and then I was going to hike down through Sycamore Canyon to uh, Clarkdale. I make my little camp up there, and in the morning I wake up to somebody chopping wood. I come here to get away from everybody, and here, I'm in somebody's camp. And there's a road that comes down, this really rugged road that comes down to this trailhead. And during the winter, a tree had fallen over the road, blocking it. And so I follow the sound, and here's this dude chopping the tree out of the way. I say, what's going on? What are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm out here camping. I say, really? In the middle of winter? He says, Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't very talkative, you know. And, and he had a really bad haircut, like he was attacked with scissors or something. He said, I, I saw your tracks coming down here. It looked like you were dragging a body. I said, No, that's my duffel bag. And he said, Well, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I told him I'm doing a little uh, soul searching. And he said, uh, Well, that's kind of what I'm doing out here. It started snowing and he said, "Well, I'll tell you what. If you want to come down to my camp, we'll have some coffee and you can you can hang out for a while. And we're going down in the canyon and and it's coming through oak orchards and there's some turkeys and some deer. I thought I was in like Alice in Wonderland or something." And I'm just looking around, and trying to keep up with him at the same time without tripping on stuff. And we're going down the trail, and finally he leaves it. He starts leaving the trail, and he says, "Try not to leave any prints because I, I don't like anybody knowing where I'm at." So we go off down this kind of kind of ravine and around this corner, and about a mile down the road, we come out on a on a cliff, you know, about halfway down a canyon, and and here is this setup, you know. He's got a little house set up, but it's tarps with a roof on it. And he's got little chairs and little tables and a kitchen counter. He's made a, a rock fireplace, and, and he's got a, like a, a handmade stepladder. And, and I'm going, whoa, dude. He told me he'd, he'd only been there a couple of weeks, and he said, you have really been busy for a couple of weeks. And uh, he said, actually, I've been down here two and a half years. Come to find out, this guy says, I've been down here too long, I'm starting to hear voices. He said, I'm going back to Camp Verde. And I said, Well, what are you going to do with this place? And he said, I wasn't going to tear it down, but if you want to hang out, as long as you take it down when you leave, you can have it. And we shook hands. I come down here to, to seek a little truth, a little enlightenment. And here, this camp is all set up, firewood's cut, everything's set up, and this guy's leaving. It was like a miracle. 50 years old, I wasn't wanted, I wasn't pursued. I hadn't been clean in venture to say 25, 30 years. So over over this period of time, the first thing I got used to was nature and how it worked and how it subtly speaks to you. I think my first year there was just becoming friends with my environment. So I had to start facing all this stuff and dealing with it, experiencing like being depressed and stuff. And it's not like I really missed anybody. I didn't have any kids. It took me a year to get over my ex to reach a point where I knew I was gonna be a celibate for the the rest of my life. Not because poor me, but a relationship is a commitment, time consuming, and to do it right, you need to be there. I started uh, reading theology. I started reading Buddhist stuff. I started reading how to meditate because I could see that my mind, it was like a monkey loose in a house. It was like I had these monkeys running around breaking, tearing shit up and going freaking crazy. And that was my mind. And then I started meditating and learning how to recognize what distraction was. It was like I was totally born again not that being born again is is all good because being born again means now you're just starting (laughs) now you got to learn how to walk you got to learn how to see you got to learn how to hear i would be out there for a few weeks a month or whatever and then i would come back to town because i i still had a room at at my friend's house i came back in to a house that's full of drugs full of drama it's like i went to a different planet i could see the difference so clearly where before i couldn't see it at all you know because i was just right there in the middle of it it was horrifying and so when i go into town i practically live at uh, the klein library which is a Northern Arizona University Library because they got a great theology and philosophy section. So I go up there and read and do my trip back and forth. My friend Jesse, who's been, I've known him for 25 years. Jesse, he he worries about me being out there in in the boonies because he doesn't know if I'm going to break my leg or something. So he gave me one of these spot things. It's a GPS. Then it's got a help button, which just tells him that I need some help. I you know maybe need some food or I need to meet you or something like that. I was sitting on a ridge looking down toward where my camp was, testing this thing. You know, I'm I'm hiking around and I'm pressing okay, pressing okay, and and all of a sudden here comes this helicopter. And he goes right down into the canyon, right over right where my, my pad is. And I'm going, holy sheep shit. And our, flying around and and I'm going that is my place and so I'm sitting up there wondering what to do you know so I call Jesse I said is there somebody lost out here I think they found my place and so I waited till the helicopter left and I waited a little bit longer and I went down to the trailhead to see if anybody was there and I didn't see anybody, no cars or nothing. so I, I went back down to the place and somebody had been through my stuff. They had all my maps out, my bags open, and they'd gone through everything and, and I knew it was must have been the forest cops because nothing was gone. It was too much stuff just to pack up and leave, you know so I just said, okay, well, see what happens. Nobody has come across this place in five years. So in the morning, I get up, do my devotions and stuff, and I was laying there listening to a tape, and I hear somebody over the tape saying, hey, can you come out here and help me out? I went out there, and click, click, I was surrounded by alcohol, tobacco, and firearms guys and a forest cop. So they handcuff me and they ask me where the drugs are, where the guns are, where this is. I don't have no drugs, I don't have no guns, I don't have nothing. I say, you know, I'm I'm a spiritual seeker, you know, I'm out here seeking the truth, and, and they're like, right. They started going through all my stuff. I had a camera, you know, They're going through my camera, going through my phone, and they, what happened was they found, my, found a BASH's receipt that had my name on it, and they ran the NCIC, and all this background came up, so they thought they had some kind of Unabomber or something. They were trying to find out what I was doing, I told them i I trying to get my life together, trying to change my life. They couldn't really believe it, so they threw me in jail for a week until they could find out that I, I wasn't doing anything illegal. And so they kicked me out of the woods and charged me 70 bucks for making improvements on federal land. It took them a couple days and a mule team to get my stuff out of the canyon, and they delivered it to the house, and they didn't charge me anything. In fact, I had a couple guys saying that they really admired what I was doing, and they were really sorry that they had to to pull me out of the woods. In 09, after I got kicked out of the woods by the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms people, I went to the Gila for a while. A friend of mine has 20 acres out off the grid there. It was starting to get a little wind-worn. The wind out there is hellacious. It, it kind of peeled the the roof back, and, and nobody was living out there, so I, I asked my friend Bonnie, if I could fix a place up and trade for staying out there, you know. What I first needed to do was, was get it weatherproof, get it varmint-proof. This is, this is Arizona. There's no water. I found a abandoned place out there that, that was falling to the ground, and I got the gutters off of it and some 50-gallon drums, made a water collection system. One good monsoon storm, I can get 500 gallons off the roof. We're located right by the Navajo Reservation, which is the Painted Desert, which is to our east. To the west is Flagstaff, so we're kind of an old Indian country. There were times I had bear problems. One time while I was out, found a dead mule deer, so I got his head because he had a nice rack, and I nailed it to a tree by my camp. I was gone for a few days. The bear came through. And just tore everything up. You know, he tried to get that deer skull off the tree. He went through all my stuff. And he must have been there for a couple of days because I found bear scat. I've heard trees fall. I've heard rocks fall in the canyon. I've been close to lightning strikes and flash floods. But, you know, you use common sense and kind of keep yourself out of a situation where you're going to drown or something or get attack, washing your hands, keeping your stuff clean so you don't smell like a, a Scooby snack. I do have a crank radio or a solar-powdered radio, and I have gotten a couple solar panels, too, and some batteries. I can read at night now. I can... Charge my my iPhone. I can hike a mile and a half and hit hit a receiver, see if anybody's uh, left me um, any messages. My main concern with my iPhone is I have lectures loaded onto it, lectures from different universities that you can download from iTunes. I'm reading a lot of great philosophy, a great theology, and starting to put stuff together, and I'm, I'm writing some really good stuff and coming up with some really fruitful thought. When I first started this lifestyle, I didn't really understand that people have been doing this for thousands of years. In a hermitage or solitude where you have no distractions is a perfect setting for spiritual contemplation. It's it's like a tool, you know, so you can adjust your desires, you can adjust your, your thinking because you can point your, your thoughts in any direction you want to. This is my like 11th year I've been doing this. All my Dauphine friends, (laughs) they're all gone. I don't know any Dauphines anymore. And the ones I do are just from the past and I maintain a couple relationships with those folks and just try and spread the love and spread the, the, the seed of truth. What it comes down to is what do you think and why do you think and how do you think because that's what you fill your heart with it's good to confront your demons but it's not good if your demons want to destroy you i don't i don't have any any demons after me i, I there's there's plenty I did that I, I, don't, I don't like. I look back and I shudder, mostly just because I was a dipshit. You live, like, say, in this dimension, like your cultural dimension or whatever, whether it's being an outlaw or being a banker or, or whatever, you know, you, you have a little sphere of people you know, things you do, notions of, of success— But if you can set that aside and and become hooked up to truth, love, goodness, beauty in the endless ineffable gestalt of being, now that can start teaching you or opening you up and and helping you to become that which you were meant to be. We're in an ever-learning, ever-unfolding process as long as we don't get distracted by all the bullshit here. So your will becomes good If your mind is filled with truth, and then out through your will, you start doing beautiful things. It's just automatic. And when you start developing that kind of structure in your being, then you can't help but become a beautiful person. And in that structure of truth and goodness and beauty in your being, you become bulletproof.
1: You've been listening to Everything is Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. The episode you just heard was produced by Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. Music in this episode was provided by John Martinez. You can find links to his music at our website, everythingisstories.com. Over at the site, you can also find all of our past episodes, a way to subscribe to our newsletter and social channels, as well as photos taken to complement this episode, taken by Ben Grimmie. You can find Everything is Stories by searching the internet. We're on all the social platforms and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Follow us, subscribe, engage with us, leave a comment. Tell all your friends. Recommendations are always the best way to find something new. Thanks for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing, and everything is stories.
0: Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story. Not his old different. introspective music it's and grousing and chewing your liver. Uh-huh, let's it's get it. on with the story. Keep you me up tonight there. with this story you're telling me, I want turn to turn the page. All well, I, I ever wanted to be, be and all I think of myself as being is a storyteller. That's all. I just tell stories.